1: So, Carol, arguably one of the most influential investment firms out there right now, one of the most influential funds is SoftBank's Vision Fund. Well, they got another one coming.
0: Yeah, I guess one isn't enough.
1: One (laughs) one $100 billion fund uh, isn't enough. Ellen Hewitt is startups reporter for Bloomberg. She joins us from our 960 studio out, excuse me, in San Francisco. So, Ellen, bring us up to date. What's going on with Massa and the gang?
2: Well, there's a lot of anticipation uh, in advance of what could be, and what our reporting suggests, there may be an announcement of a launch of a second vision fund as soon as this week. Uh, And as you mentioned, yeah, this would be a follow-up to an absolutely enormous $100 billion original vision fund, which has completely reshaped the way that venture capital has worked in Silicon Valley and around the world in the last couple of years. And some details that we don't know, you know, we don't know exactly the size of this potential vision fund, too. But it does seem like we may be getting news about it soon. That's some of the latest reporting.
1: All right. Just quickly want to bring you a headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal. President Trump suing to block the House from getting his state tax returns. That's following some action here in the New York state legislature. I believe right. that opened up the possibility for that. President Trump suing to block the House of Representatives, the US House of Representatives, from getting the New York State tax returns. We'll have more on that as we go along.
0: So, Ellen, let's talk about this because, I mean, um, the first fund, talk to us about the types of investments are there, the kind of money that SoftBank can actually make in a company, uh, and what kind of returns do we know about it that gives it kind of leverage to start a second fund?
2: Yeah, so the first vision fund has been a massive deployer of venture capital, completely reshaping some of the valuations that we've been seeing in the Valley. Some of its biggest investments include Uber, which is now public, and WeWork, in which it has put more than $10 billion, I believe, in in various financial forms uh, over the last... Two years ish. They started investing in WeWork in 2017. So, single handedly, the Vision Fund and other SoftBank capital can change the valuation of a particular company that they've decided to sort of make as the king of a particular industry. So, their strategy tends to be to look at an industry, say food delivery, and decide, okay, we want to make one of these companies really equipped to wipe out all the other ones. And we are going to give them hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, and that is going to be their strategy to proceed forward. Uh, it's often about growth, growth, growth. In food delivery, for example, they have put a bunch of money behind DoorDash, mm-hmm. and you've seen in the last year, DoorDash has actually uh, moved up the ranks in prevalence of food delivery and and often outstripping other competitors such as Postmates. That's based on data that you can see from credit card transactions. So yeah they just they tend to exert um, a heavy hand
1: well and it's interesting too as you point out i mean they they play the role of kingmaker not only owing to size but brand obviously so well-known masayoshi Sone. i mean one of the things that's interesting here too is who's underneath it who's contributing here and you've got some of the names that were in before and presumably are coming back again tell us about that
2: absolutely there. are Biggest backer, uh, single backer for the first vision fund was the um, Saudi uh, sovereign wealth fund, put in something like $45 billion. It seems like that is anticipated to maybe be a major investor in the second vision fund, along with the sovereign wealth fund of Abu Dhabi. These are big players who are very interested in getting access to some of the returns that the vision fund has already shown. You know, we reported that in June, the uh, the first Vision Fund, you know, Masayoshi Son had already said that the returns were somewhere in the 60% range, not even having deployed all the capital in the 100 billion dollars. Somewhere in the, they've deployed something like 64 billion dollars, and so they're using that momentum. Uh, you know, it seems like they are using that momentum to then go out and maybe officially start fundraising for a second.
0: Yeah, it makes it easier, right, when you can show those returns. I do (laughs) wonder about, though, uh, the ability for Masayoshi-san with the Vision Fund to kind of squeeze out other smaller tech investors because his ability to put so much money behind a company does, you know, drive up their valuations. He really has kind of upended the, I feel like, the investment space and certainly the venture space.
2: Yeah, and we've seen effects, you know, where companies talk about, like, uh, you know, Masa comes in and says, I would like to give you, or, you know, invest, I would like to buy, say, $400 million worth of equity. And maybe the company was only looking for half that, but the check often comes with a take-it-or-leave-it sense. So so you see startups who are maybe not even looking to grow quite as quickly. You know, Masa is known for having this incredibly ambitious vision on how quickly companies can grow this is something that the WeWork ceo has talked about you know he would lay out his vision and masa would say okay dream 10 times bigger um and and you can see that effect where also softbank would often come in and write checks that were even larger than the companies had been anticipating raising and then yes it has effects on valuation as well so many many other vcs have uh, like discussed maybe not openly but behind doors about the softbank effect of you know valuations going up um, there not being any space left in the rounds that they wanted to invest in. Uh, it's just when you have something that's maybe an order of magnitude bigger than other funds, you're going to see effects that are, are throwing the regular balance out of whack.
1: Ellen Hewitt is startups reporter for Bloomberg. She joined us from our Bloomberg 960 studio out in San Francisco. Talking SoftBank, poised to announce a new technology vision fund. It's second that first fund, $100 billion, and as Ellen really nicely laid out, really upending just the way the investment yeah. world works in Silicon Valley and beyond, a kingmaker for sure.
0: Well, son, remember he put about $20 million into Alibaba, and last month uh, the company recorded an $11 billion profit from selling just part of the stake. So, yeah, those are some returns.
3: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. And we are once again going to believe in ourselves and what we can achieve. And like some slumbering giant, we are going to rise and ping off the guy ropes of self-doubt and negativity. With better education, better infrastructure, more police, fantastic full-fibre broadband sprouting in every household, we are going to unite this amazing country.
0: And of course, that was the new UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, the public face of the Brexit campaign, making some comments after winning election. Now, top of his agenda is getting a Brexit deal done in three months. As for British investors who have been dealing with this since the referendum back in 2016, well, some may have actually found a way around it. Writing about just that, Matt Winkler, he is columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, editor in chief emeritus of Bloomberg News. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Interesting story. Hadn't thought about this because we keep saying how difficult difficult it is in terms of investing in the U.K. because of Brexit. You talk to some who have figured it out.
3: Well, first we looked at the Bloomberg to find out who's doing well (laughs) and not so well. And the folks who are doing well did either of two things. They either purged their holdings of U.K. equity. Completely out? uh, Yeah. Or they went into what we call the most defensive kinds of investments that survive man-made and natural disasters, which... You know typically are consumer staple companies, but the indisputable uh, winner here is uh ben rogoff's uh, polar capital technology fund, and this is uh, a fund that, since he got there in two thousand and six uh has been focused on technology and uh as far as he's concerned, there is no technology in the u k so most of his holdings are uh, outside uh for sure the U.K., but mostly in the U.S., mostly in California. and
0: Maybe names we've heard of? Maybe (laughs) names you've heard
3: of. Yeah, all the names you've heard of. Uh, The one thing he did do, though, in 2016 was completely eliminate whatever he had uh, that was in the U.K., and he's not likely... To change that uh, for the time being in fact you know if you ask him he'll tell you that his focus is entirely outside the UK and by the way the fund is now at an all-time high it's Amazing. never traded at a higher value he's returned triple digits since that referendum June 23rd I guess uh, 2016 um, and uh, you know for him the story is the internet and the internet is the US the internet is China and therefore, it's the companies that uh, thrive on the Internet. Well,
1: and interestingly, he has shifted his focus more to China than from the U.S., you know, looking at Tencent, Alibaba, uh, and obviously broad, more broadly in Asia, Samsung as well. That's an interesting sort of pivot within. It felt Well. Like.
3: You know, if you ask him, he would say, it's not so much a conscious, I like China more than the US, or I like China, especially, it's more about the companies and their relative values, and their relative values in the context of valuations on the internet, Right. Um, and therefore, you know, American, uh, California-based companies had a huge uh, appreciation, as you're well aware, uh, over the past 18 months, and so it's not illogical for him to lighten up a bit um, in that context.
0: And the consumer staples play just makes sense because, right, people still need to buy those items no matter what happens. Yeah,
3: food, uh, (laughs) spirits, beer. (laughs) Right. They're fine.
0: (laughs) So those U.K. companies are fine.
3: Well, Diageo is doing great, uh, for example, uh, relatively speaking. And so that's that's a defensive play uh, if you're in the U.K.,
1: and so, Matt, what's your sense? I mean, given the Boris Johnson news today, not unexpected, as we know, but what? how should investors think about that decision?
3: So when the referendum occurred, uh, the levers said not to worry, uh, you know, things are going to be just fine. Um, in fact, if you look at it from an economic perspective, since that vote uh, more than three years ago, um, the U.K. has underperformed the European Union as an economy. Um, and that's a big change because in the 20 years up to the vote itself, the U.K. was the top performer in Europe in right. both GDP growth and investment. And so to go from a 20-year period of outperforming Europe, generally, uh, to underperforming in just the past three and a half years is a big change. And that explains why, if you ask Ben Rogoff what happened, he'll say there's a buyer strike on UK equities. Mm -hmm. The buyer strike in UK equities is a reflection of the diminishing confidence in the UK economy because everyone's so preoccupied by this Brexit. Uh, policy can't focus on anything else.
0: Right, and the longer it drags on, the more of a, a drain it is on everything. Matt, great, a smart read, especially on this day. Matt Winkler, he is columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, of course, editor-in-chief emeritus of Bloomberg News, and you can check him out on the Bloomberg Terminal.
3: But I say... That the, today, than the, man in that's
0: right. the woman is uh, smarter, especially when it's Kathy Wood. Um, right. Our Bloomberg Intelligence team, by the way, has described ARK Investments as a shop that's doing something most stock pickers aren't and can't do, attract assets and stay relevant. Kathy Wood is back with us. She's CEO at ARK Investment, here again in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. So great to have you here. Oh, I'm
4: very happy to be here again
0: Paul Paul Brennan our producer we were talking before we got going uh, back at our desks your innovation ETF fund is up nearly 31% this year your genomic revolution ETF is up 42% this is according to at least our data Uh, your web ETF up nearly 26% your fintech innovation up about 13% that's remarkable how
4: do you keep it going? You've been doing this now for was it? Did you say four years? Actually, five years five in January. Years. Yes. Uh, well, we it all starts with research, and and I mean first principles research, uh, trying to figure out the learning curves of new technologies, which are characterized by cost declines, and then you can figure out the kind of unit growth you're going to see. And there are there are more opportunities today than there have ever been. We have five major. Innovation platforms, right, and out of those are are 14 technologies, distinct technologies, all which are characterized by different cost curves, and we can model this out. And we can, uh, for example, I'll give you an example: uh, electric vehicles. Based on our battery technology work, the cost declines in batteries. Uh, we are going to see. We believe electric vehicle sales go from 1.45 million globally last year to 26 million in. Twenty twenty three. That's five years. That's almost twenty fold growth. It's kind of the kind of ramp up that people dream of, right? It is. But what's so interesting? The inefficiencies in the markets today, because of this severe specialization and silo siloization mm-hmm. of Wall Street. You've got uh, auto, manuf- auto analysts following this, and really, you need to have robotic specialists, battery experts artificial intelligence experts uh you know you have to reorganize research departments in order to really understand what's about to happen here
1: and so how do you do that where do you find these people and how do you put them together in a way that's the most effective
4: well what's interesting we have a wonderful culture and uh you know it 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 bubbles up really uh In research, for example, I'm not the first screen, I'm the last screen. The first screen is the analysts Mm -hmm. who are gonna be working alongside the people who are interviewing because we're so collaborative. The robotics, artificial intelligence, and uh, um, transportation network analysts all have to work together, and you know, really, they build models together. This is not how the street does it. Right. Uh, and so, they're first off, they have to be really smart uh, and very collaborative, you know, and very team-oriented. I want to pick your or we want to pick your brain uh, on some of the specific companies that you've
0: been invested in, but I do wonder, since you started almost what five years ago, how has the way you think about disruption or the companies you invest in has it changed much, Kathy, or is it still a lot of the same investments?
4: Well, our conviction in these five platforms. Has increased uh, because we are closer in all of them to the tipping points where we're going to see exponential growth, like I just described from electric vehicles. So, uh, and what's been really gratifying, I, I'll give you an example. Just keep on electric vehicles for one second. Uh, uh, two years ago, when we did our first forecast for electric vehicles in two thousand seven, uh, two thousand twenty-two. Right? Uh, we came up with 17 million units based on this cost curve decline. Uh, the, uh, the forecasting agencies out there were for- forecasting for the same year 250,000 units. Today, they're up to three and a half million units for 2022. We're still at 17 million. Oh. Mm. So this concept, and it's all focused on Wright's law, which which is a relative to Moore's law, except mm-hmm. Wright's law is a function of units, whereas Moore's law is a function of time. Wright's law really works.
1: Wow. And so, Talk about some names. We know Tesla is a big holding and a high conviction for you, or has been, Mm -hmm. still there?
4: Oh, very much so. Our conviction has increased. And uh, you know, it was so interesting after Autonomy day Tesla did an autonomy day and validated many of the things we had been talking about for the last five years uh, because of the individuals who are covering this stock and it's not that that not their fault. I mm-hmm. mean this in most research directors would, uh, ask the auto analyst to follow this 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 company but it 's not it is an auto company, but that 's the least of what it is it 's a transportation as a service hmm. uh, uh, um, model and autonomy day exploded that for us. The street had the opposite reaction they said, Oh, they have to change the subject." Because they're running out of cash or demand isn't in there, it's been a whack-a-mole situation, and every step of the way, Elon Musk is proving the bears wrong. They just don't know it yet. Except the stock's down 22% this year, right? Yeah. So
0: it's taken a hit. Is that? Have you been buying more into yes, it? Yes, we
4: bought it. It was at one point down. Uh, almost 50%, and we bought it all the way down, 180s, uh, is, and I think uh, it's at 250-something yeah, today. Yeah, 260, yeah. Yeah, so from that point, it's been a very nice buy. If you look at our trading activity around controversy, it's uh, alpha generating. Last year, we'll yeah. stay on Tesla. Last year, Tesla was up 6.5%. People forget that. Uh Take that aside. If you just look at our trading activity, the the great opportunities that controversy uh, give us. Uh, last year alone, just Tesla alone gave us a hundred and seventy five basis point in alpha, just the trading activity. Wow! Yeah. So. Yeah.
1: All right. Another name that has come under, maybe not controversy, but certainly some skepticism uh, broadly from investors, is Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your conviction there?
4: Our conviction level is high, but you'll see in our flagship portfolio, it, whereas Tesla's ranked one or two, all the time, pretty much, we think it's severely undervalued. Uh, Netflix is much better appreciated, so it's mm-hmm. uh, it's in the bottom ten. Uh, but we do think the international opportunity, and in fact, uh, James Wang, our um, next generation internet analyst, has uh, discovered that in India, uh, mobile data is exploding because it costs only twenty six cents per gigabit. Uh, the average for the world, I think, is around nine dollars. Wow. wow, that's a big difference, right? Yeah, and so Netflix is going to we think be a big deal in India.
0: Speaking of big,
4: you've got a Big Ideas Summit 2019 tomorrow. Tell us, we got about 40 seconds. Tell sure. us about it. Yes, uh, Big Ideas. We started Big Ideas uh, about three years ago, trying to set out for people uh, some uh, easy way to consume the kind of innovation that we are uh, centering our research on, uh, and it, it is now an annual publication, and we are. Uh, for the second year in a row uh, uh, doing a summit around these big ideas Uh, if you want to it's going to be live streamed starting at 245 tomorrow from the new york stock exchange and if you want to register uh, just go to arc's twitter handle which is at arc invest and you can find the link there I think it's fascinating. And come back again cuz
1: we, we love know, We never love have enough time you. with you. Thank One you. of the Bloomberg so 50 much. last year we yep. should mention Kathy Hopefully Witt, CEO, so. CIO as well of Ark Invest. Thank you so much. This is Bloomberg.
0: Yeah, lots of money, cheap money, quantitative easing, all that kind of stuff definitely changes things. Uh, This story among our most read on the Bloomberg today about how a decade of low rates and bond yields, well, it is changing everything. It is this week's, uh, it is in, I should say, this week's upcoming issue of the magazine. It's on the Bloomberg terminal as we speak. Let's get into it with Bloomberg News Bond and FX reporter Liz Capo McCormick. She's on the phone in New York along with our Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Wonky as I kind of. To love uh, this story um, Liz talk to us because we have been living in some interesting times uh, coming off of the financial crisis
5: yeah hi Carol so yeah, yeah I think the best line which we didn't put in the story but that someone said to me is it's just pretty mind-bending that um, mm-hmm. it's really about uh, the 10year anniversary of the end of the recession end of the worst part of the crisis and you would have thought rates would be much higher because we have had growth all that long. We're in the longest recovery on record in the U.S. and the ten-year bond yield's at about two percent, you know. And the uh, Fed funds rate, you know, what the Fed uses to guide policy, is just a little over two percent as well. So it, it is kind of mind-bending that rates have not moved up that much in all this time.
1: Well, and Joe, one of the things I like about the story, and I feel like, if, if I may, this is sort of like a hallmark of the Joel Weber business week is like, this is the story that says, here's what's happening. Here's a sweep of what's been going on and essentially why it matters and why you care.
6: Yeah. I think the implications for this, um, I didn't know about the, that quote not being in the story. Liz. I'll, I might have to revisit that one with your editor, uh, because it does speak to just how unprecedented this whole thing is. And When you, when you, you know, these things in finance that you just take for granted, like that you could, you know, invest and you know, continue to make money and like, you know, make sometimes make a lot of money. And then sometimes like that you could invest money and like not make money or like lose money on the investment. And that is like, you know, shocker investments sometimes go down. But what if from the outset with a negative return with negative interest rates? You will, you know, going into it that you're going to lose money, right? And, and then if well, you're, you know, if you're allocating on a global level, and you're, you know, looking out for pensioners or whatever, like the repercussions of that are huge, and. We've been living in that, and sometimes we just forget about how crazy that is.
0: Well, and I do think uh, Kathleen Hayes was just talking about was it a corporate bond issue that was going to be, it was a 10 year issue, yeah. right? That was going to be negative. So a company saying, hey, loan me money, but you're not going to make any money. it. you're not going to make
3: anything. Liz, yeah.
0: Liz, what are the longer term implications? Like the headline on the story says, it's changing everything. So, you know, walk us through some of the biggest changes kind of in our investment world and our, in the world we live in today. Well, I think one of
5: the big ones, which Joel kind of alluded to with the pension funds is, and and they've been out there kind of trying to, you know, bring people in line on expected returns, is that the returns that you used to expect in fixed income are just not going to be the same, at least for as long as the eyes can see, Uh, because, you know, as we mentioned in the story, and you guys always talk about through the day, is, you know, everyone's expecting the Fed to now turn and cut rates later this month. So as, as much as rates haven't gone up that high, they're actually turning, you know, we don't know if it's just a little while or what, but for now they they may go down they're a little. They're going the other way, so, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of people have to kind of, you know, get their head on straight. And um, I always sadly tell the story of, you know, my parents who I think smartly my brother and I said, let's get them out of stocks. They're in their 80s. But what have people been making in money market funds better than they used Mm -hmm. to, but not a lot, you know? So that's why, like we get to in the story, too, people are kind of pushing out the risk spectrum. And we don't know if that will end badly.
6: Because, again, it gets back to that yield question of, like, if you know going into something, you're not going to be able to get the return on the investment that you thought you would, Mm -hmm. then maybe you're going to have to go chasing. And, And as things, as more and more people start chasing stuff, like, where does that lead us?
0: Right. How does that lead to inflated asset values elsewhere? Uh,
6: not only that, but just Evaluation. investments that you know you you were piling into something that we maybe shouldn't be piling into. Right.
1: And this isn't just happening in the United States. Well, I that's think that's the that's bigger, a thing. really important. Like, thing.
6: Actually, I think that that speaks to one of the reasons that we're we're talking about it in the magazine this week is like the U.S. is just low. There's a lot of other places around the world where it's negative, right? right? And you look at Japan, which has really been the frontier of that, and now it's Europe. And it, the thing that I, Liz, I wanted to ask you about just real quick is like, there's a sense that I have that it feels like it, a we're on thin ice, but also that thin ice is spreading, and there's not much that we can do about it because we're really only playing with monetary policy with these interest rates, right? So is that is that the sense that you have as well? And just got well, about forty seconds.
5: Okay, that's the sense that I get too. That the you know all these central banks, you know, are just saying, well kind of we're the only game in town in some ways we we have to do more even though maybe it's it's not working you know like the fed hasn't gotten the inflation they want but you're right these low rates and many negative may go lower you know uh, because the, the central banks around the world are tilting dovish again
0: Looking at the WB function on the Bloomberg, the tenure, negative in France, in Germany, we're negative in Sweden, we're negative in the Netherlands, we're negative in Switzerland, we're negative in Japan. That's amazing. Um, fascinating story, a must-read uh, for the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week. Joel Weber, thank you, thank you. Editor of Bloomberg Business Week in our interactive broker studio. Liz capel McCormick, our thanks to her as well. Bon and FX reporter at Bloomberg News. I'm
1: in my car.
3: is the drive to the close that punk to music will drive us till the dawn on Bloomberg Radio
0: It is time for The Drive to the Close. Brian Yachman is with us, Chief Investment Officer, Portfolio Manager of the YCG Enhanced Fund. It's a broad market value fund. It's up nearly 30% this year, according to our data, and it's a fund that's beaten just about all of its peers over the past five years, returning on average nearly 12% annually. He's based in Austin, Texas, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. So great to have you here with us. Thanks Uh, for having me. i got to say, your record um, is so impressive, and I was talking to you, knowing your dad, uh, I've been talking to him for years. Just remind everybody about your philosophy. It's value oriented, right? It's all about value.
7: Yeah. So, and and to be clear, we're a different shop than my father's firm, Um, but we are, uh, What I guess, values in the eye of the beholder, right? So yes, of course, we're value oriented, but we also, we want long-term growth. So we tend to focus on global champions that have enduring pricing power. Uh, with long-term volume growth opportunities, and we like to see it when there's shareholder-oriented management, you know, ownership-minded teams, um, and conservative capital structures that can survive a deep recession.
0: How do you figure out? How do you determine ownership-minded teams? What does that mean?
7: Well, uh, managers, you know, they they basically have five things they can do with their cash flow, and so we're analyzing to say. What are you doing with that cash? Uh, We call it guarding it, so G-A-R-D-D. They can grow the existing business, make acquisitions, repurchase stock, uh, pay dividends, or pay down debt. And we want to get an idea of what – think of it like when you own a stock uh, versus a bond. A bond, you get the coupon every Mm -hmm. six months. You get to reinvest it. In the case of an equity, you're a minority shareholder, so you need to make sure the management is reinvesting your coupon for you. I want to make sure they have a good track record of allocating the capital in a wise manner.
1: And so talk to us about some names that you're looking at. I'm especially interested in your thoughts coming out of last week about the big banks, because I know you've looked at that uh, space pretty closely. You own uh, some of the big banks. How should we be thinking about them?
7: Sure. So th- while we focus on these global champions predominantly, and I think there's tends to be an underpricing of high quality on average, what we love to see as well are when businesses are out of favor mm-hmm. um, over short-term, temporary, uh, you know, Investors focused on the short run and forgetting the long term picture, and this is a situation where, of course, uh, concerns over a flattening yield curve, over um, what you know, rates now going down. It's amazing to me to think well, back in December we were talking about rates going up, yep. you know, and they're going to go up in lockstep, and now we're talking about the next move being down here next week, and so it's uh, it's created this scare, and almost all these other businesses have been lifted but the banking sector in general has been left behind. And so we're finding uh, excitement in names such as Charles Schwab's one of our favorites as an online brokerage, and then uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo. Um, think of them as the, kind of the three largest U.S. deposit franchisees. And they're trading today at multiples relative to the S&P 500 that are cheaper than about we've ever seen in the last 40 years of history. Uh, you know it ranges but they they they're extremely cheap because of these these fears creating an opportunity
0: and at the same time pay a dividend
7: yeah they pay a dividend so while you're waiting if if you're waiting to, for a re-rating on the on the multiple at least they're at least they're not wasting the cash flow they're paying it back in dividends they're buying back stock 100% of their earnings are getting paid out to shareholders in the case of Wells Fargo because of this asset cap they're just reinvesting in their own asset they're reinvesting in themselves and paying out about 150% of their earnings currently while they wait for that cap to get lifted and for deposit growth to, to resume um, but yes yeah, so you get you get paid while you wait And what's amazing to me is it'd be one thing if they were extremely over levered relative to past to explain being cheaper, they're actually more conservatively capitalized today than they have been. You know, they've gone from about 14 times down to eight times and there's ample liquidity. You know, you're talking about loan deposit ratios in the seventies instead of 90%. Um, So very, I guess what I'm saying is they're in better shape than they've been in a long time. And ultimately what's going to determine their profitability in the long run is the deposits. And the deposits are still growing. They're still gathering assets around five percent right. a year.
0: And the bigger and the big banks are just getting bigger and bigger. E- exactly, you're really seeing that. I'm curious: is, your, is Mastercard still your number one holding?
7: It, it is, yes. Yep. And
0: have you been pairing back, adding to it?
7: We haven't, um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is it from a tax standpoint uh it is just a it'd be a massive capital gains tax for us and mm-hmm. we're not viewing as hey let's own this for the next few weeks or months right or th- this is something where we're thinking long term um they have such a long runway for growth uh you know you talk about 15 percent of the world is is still 85 percent of the world is still cash 15 percent in credit now in the consumer side it's more uh credit card heavy but there's still also a lot of r- runway in the business side all around on both sides lot lots of room for growth it's a very capital light business requires almost no reinvestment in order to grow their business they just run it over their their rails mm-hmm. and so the question is is can you count on those cash flows continuing and we believe that the disruption risk is very low it's something we're constantly looking at but it's very low um And you look at the other people who've tried to come in. A lot of Silicon Valleys wanted to come and encroach on that turf. And they get to the point where they say... I can't beat them. I'll just join them. Yeah, well, it is exactly amazing. what you're, right? Yeah.
0: The story we had actually in the magazine that just talked about kind of your traditional credit card companies, like linking up with right. some of these other stores, of these payment services.
1: Um, so talk to us a little bit about CBRE. Is that still a, a, a big holding? Fascinating to yeah. look at the real estate space. And mm-hmm. I know that's mostly commercial. Obviously, big news in the residential world today with Amazon uh, and Realogy uh, teaming up. But What do you like about real estate here now?
7: So think of CBRE as the real estate uh, in real estate. They're the largest uh, s- uh, service provider yeah. for global. They are a global champion for Fortune 500 companies' real estate service needs. Yeah. Um, and so, if you're if you have real estate needs, they're that one stop shop. They're going to be your go to player. Um, but what you have is you have a trend, a tailwind towards urbanization and outsourcing, mm-hmm. um, where as the world becomes. I guess I should start by saying there's a trend just from the fact that population growth and wealth co- is, is correlated with wealth, mm-hmm. right? We, we recognize that there's a positive uh, some game from cooperation. And so we as a people go and gravitate towards cities. And as that happens and there's more and more out uh, urbanization, these large Fortune 500s want to outsource to a specialist who can deal with these matters more efficiently than them. Um, and I view them as, a, again, very difficult-to-disrupt-type business. Yeah. Uh, when you're thinking about a, a brokerage business, here are very large transactions, they're very consequential. Like compare it to, say, for example, like autos, where that got disrupted, right? Um, because when you go to make your credit your, your uh, reservation, you, you can easily cancel it, no problem, right. and unwind it. We're talking large things, that, uh, lots of... Uh, uh, demographics and topographical like yeah. just, it's a very complex bespoke process that I just don't see this being disintermediated Yeah, um, it's a
1: great name always good to catch up with you Brian Yagman chief investor and portfolio manager for the YCG Enhance Fund it's a top 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 performer great to have you here for the drive to the close